postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Welcome back to the Story Church Podcast, everyone. It's uh, Pastor Marcus here. I'm super stoked to be here. As you already know, we are in the Story Church Podcast, Padinar Season 3. This is Season 3 of the Padinar Series. And the topic for this season is ministering with the LGBT plus community. I am joined by Paul Anthony Turner, who you guys met last week, a pastor, a brilliant thinker, and, uh, and also a gay Christian. And so he has so much insight on this massive topic that I'm just super stoked to have him here. And uh, welcome back, Paul. It is awesome to see you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be back. Let's 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 jump right into this, man. Because I'm sure those listening are like, man, I'm ready. I'm ready to to, to learn some more, experience some more. Last week we talked about um, we're talking about like ten things to not do. We're starting there. Ten things to not do. Um, last week we talked about um, don't presume that you understand LGBT plus sexualities. So we talked about that quite a bit. And if you have anything you want to add to that, um, feel free to do so in a moment. But what we're going to do today is we're going to try and get through a few more. Um, and, and we, you know, obviously we can't be exhaustive with these guys. Uh, like I said in last week's episode, um, this series is just one tool. That's all it is. All right. It's just one tool. Don't see it as an end all be all. See it as a tool to propel you into deeper exploration with LGBT plus um, people in your family, in your community, in your workplace, in your church. Uh, see it as a tool to propel you into those spaces for deeper understanding. Because there's no way Paul Anthony and I can fully explore everything in, in you know, perfect depth. It's just not possible. Um, and so, you know, use this and Paul's experience, Paul Anthony's experience as, as, a, as, a, as a portal into a, into a new dimension. Uh, look, they, they, wasn't that, wasn't that, wow. Yeah, that's that was really, like, like fireworks. Bringing uh, the English language together in a beautiful way. That's it, bro. That's it. So, so all right. So, Paul Anthony, we're we're gonna talk a little bit more. Um, uh, there's there's a list of ten here, so let's try to get through a few tonight. Um, so last week we talked about you know don't presume you understand LGBT plus sexualities. I'll let you introduce us to to the new to the new one, um, and we'll try to get through a few today. And um, but yeah, go for it. If there's anything you want to add from last week, you can go for that too. Yeah. Um. Actually, and I just want to. I think we also covered last week. Um, that people should, that the church should not, should not um, assume that what it hears in the news or in media or whatever about LGBT plus people to be true um, or that LGBT plus people are monolith. I think I covered that one last week, but that was, that's, um, that was a second important thing. Um, and uh, that's part and parcel really of the first thing I brought up, which is that the church needs to be careful not to presume that it understands LGBT plus sexualities. They're very, very, they're very nuanced and broad and multifaceted uh, experiences. And the church has a lot of, a lot to read up on and study. And actually that segues into um, a third point to cover one of these third, you know, the third don't do this thing. Um, and is don't presume that you have a, thoroughgoing understanding of biblical sexuality. So there's, don't, don't, you know, don't presume that you understand LGBT plus sexualities. And then there's also, don't presume that you understand biblical sexuality. A lot of times we go through life thinking that what we understand from quote, the Bible, um, is, we think that those things are, are the things that we believe as being biblical are actually biblical. In reality, often the things that have that we have come to believe are biblical are really just the products of our biases and our prejudices or our cultural milieu um, um, informing us um, as to how we should believe or, co or comport ourselves. And so, you know, growing up, I thought 
based on the culture I grew up in. I grew up in a mostly black culture and I also grew up in church culture and particularly the Adventist culture. I grew up with a certain understanding of gender um, or gender expression, gender, gender conceptualization um, that in more recent time I had to realize, wait, those things I was told about how a man should act aren't so much biblical. In fact, I would say a lot of it's not biblical and is more just what I was told by these particular cultures that I was that I have been a part of. And so I'll, I'll just give an example. Growing up, I remember being very flamboyant, if you want to say it that way, as a kid, very expressive. Um, I was very musical. Um, I like to use my hand gestures in a certain way. Um, I remember I, I, I felt a certain kind of what we in, in Western societies might say, I, I felt a certain kind of femininity. Um, and I really don't, I don't like, to, I'm hesitant to say that. And that's why I, that's why I like to say, exp, I, I felt exceptionally expressive because I don't want to say that only women or those who see who, who are feminine or, you know, are, are the ones are the ones who are able to um, be expressive. I believe that God has made it so whether you're male or female, whether cisgender or transgender or whatever, um, you can be your expressive self and your expressive self looks like however it's going to look like. But, you know, growing up in the cultures I grew up in, it was kind of an implicit rule that you don't do these kinds of things. You don't dress these ways. You don't speak in this kind of way if you're a guy or if you're a woman. Um, and a lot of those beliefs were based on, quote unquote, the Bible. And I took that hook, line, and sinker, you know, a man should, should be tough and should, ha should have no expression and should not want to show any emotion um, or should not be affectionate to toward other men in any way, sexual or platonic, or, you know, that we should be these hyper-sexualized beings who should look at women in these very objective um, objectionable kind of ways. Um, and I thought those things were, were the biblical, the, those are the biblical ways for us as men to carry ourselves. Um, but in reality, it turned out after, you know, years of breaking those beliefs down, I come to realize those things aren't true whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and this so is, again, if, if I could just jump in here for a moment, I think this is <clears throat> a really humbling experience because let me just, yeah. So I remember when, when I was a soldier and I went to Iraq and I saw that in the culture in Iraq, um, we, uh, my very first mission, we had to go through, we were going from Ur to Baghdad and uh, it's about an eight hour drive through the desert. And there's these security checkpoints along the way. And I remember stopping at the very first checkpoint we stopped at and the two security guards that were at the checkpoint were Iraqi men and they came out of their tower to wave us through. Not a tower, sorry, it was more of a shed. Um, they came out to wave us through and as they waved us through, they were holding hands. Hmm. And all the guys in the unit are like, ah, you know, uh, typical sort of toxic masculinity, you know, like look at these guys calling them all kinds of names. Um, and then I learned like, this is actually, male affection is totally normal in their culture. And, mm -hmm. and, and it, it kind of gave a new understanding for me of when you're reading the Bible of things like, for example, the Apostle John um, mm. laying his head on Jesus' chest, mm. you know? And it's like, well, in our culture, if a guy lays his head on another guy's chest, it's like, it's a no-go, you know? It's, it's seen as, you might even say, hey, there's, they're, 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 they're same-sex attracted or they're gay. Whereas this was just, this was the way masculinity was expressed. If, if you could even use yeah. the term masculinity, it was just a humanity, right? The expression of humanity, expressing yeah. love, expressing yeah. affection. Um, so yeah, like, and, and then, so this sort of broadened my horizon. And, you know, I feel like traveling does that to you, even though I wasn't really traveling, I suppose. <laughs> but, you know, going to, <laughs> going to different places. Um, I've heard similar things from like the Philippines, where it's, it's, it's where men are, are much more affectionate than they are in Western culture. Um, and... And then I, I looked at history and I saw like there was actually a time in Western culture where it was the masculine pink was a man's color. Yeah. Because it was closer to red, which was seen as aggressive and blue was a woman's color. Whereas in modern society, it's kind of been flipped around. 
and and men also wore high heels this was the normal thing you know like especially during the kind of like aristocratic you know like this was part of their um their uh wardrobe i suppose and 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 that wasn't seen as cross-dressing in any way it was just that was the men's fashion you know and so i realized like okay so there's 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 a lot in what I construct, and and I wanna I wanna touch on what you said as well about not being able to express emotion, um, that men don't cry, that men don't express emotion, uh, that they don't say how they feel, that they just suck it up, that they're tough, you know, and um, that they bottle everything up inside. Um, all of these are like socially constructed paradigms, you know, and 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 we think this is what it means to be a man. And and, right. and and this is, I guess this is where I'm heading at with my extremely long-winded <laughs> um, <laughs> comment here. When I realized how little I understand my own sexuality, right? I can identify myself as a cisgender, heterosexual male. But when I realized, like, wait a minute, I don't even know what each of those mean. Mm. It put me in a position where I'm like, if if I don't even fully understand myself... What gives me the right to to pretend that I understand someone who is a member of the LGBT community? So I'll have people come up to me and say, you know, Pastor Marcus, what is your theology on the same-sex marriage and, you know, all this stuff? And they want this fully-fledged, um, every every single, you know, checkmark ticked, and, you know, like everything, you know. And I'm just like, honestly, I'm just trying to learn. Like, I'm just trying to listen right now because I've realized, like, this is so much bigger than I imagined that I realized, like, I need to take a pause, zip my lips, stop trying to come up with an opinion and just, like, listen, 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 listen. You know, listen to the word, be in the word, but listen to people as well and their experiences and what they're going through. And, yeah, and just really just, like, soak it up, <laughs> you know, understand before I start yapping, I suppose. Anyways, that was my long-winded <laughs> Go on, bro. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think, no, no, I think, I think what you said is absolutely correct. Um, people need to learn to sit at the feet of the word of God and... And also the feet of people, if you want to say like other, you know, LGBT plus people and learn to listen to learn to listen to the word for what it is saying instead of what your culture is dictating. The word must be saying um, this isn't going to, you know, and that and that won't mean necessarily that you're going to come away from beliefs about biblical sexuality that are completely different. But I'm, I will say this, especially if you're a Christian coming from a Western perspective regarding biblical sexuality, I can almost guarantee you that most, if not all of us, let's say 99% of us are going to have extremely um, tainted views of sexuality. Um, it's gonna be very, very heteronormative. It's gonna be very marriage and sex oriented. Um, it's going to be very masculine, um, et cetera. Just know that even if you think that some of the most fundamental aspects of your understanding of biblical sexuality, even if you believe those things are correct to some degree, there's there's undoubtedly an even um, an even greater portion section, whatever of your beliefs that might be very incorrect and needs some updates, um, some modifications, or needs to be wholly abandoned. Um, and that's something that I had to go through my own journey, you know, as, as a gay Christian. That doesn't mean that everything that I came to understand about biblical sexuality changed. It just means like 99% of it did, or maybe 90% of it, however much of it changed, a lot of it changed yeah. or it became very nuanced. Um, so that's, that's, that's a third point. In addition to, you know, you know, one, don't, don't, don't presume that you understand LGBT plus sexualities. You don't, <laughs> one does not. Um, and secondly, you know, don't, don't think that LGBT plus people are a monolith and what you're seeing out there is just what we're all like. Thirdly, don't presume that you have a thoroughgoing understanding of, of biblical sexuality. If you have not sat down and read the word of God and really studied it out, um, sexuality out in, in all its multifacetedness, and there's people who've been studying this for centuries. Yeah. If you've not done that kind of work, then it, I think it becomes, um, it's, intellectually and spiritually dishonest for us to go to go about in a heady in a, in a very 
kind of confident way, believing that what we currently hold is is next to God yeah, <laughs> and yeah. being right. Well, you know um, what I think part yeah. of the problem is uh, uh, part of part of what makes this difficult um, is there is a sense in a lot of traditional Christianity, particularly where there's a fundamentalist flavor, where people will say people people have like this like super black and white view. Um, it's the classic. Um, how's the bumper sticker go? Um, is it you know God said it? Um, oh, I believe God it, said that settles it. I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and it, it sounds good, but when you deconstruct that, you realize like this is really <laughs> this leads to some really bizarre things. So, like, for example, like I'll talk to people. Let me give a few examples. Like I'll talk to people who will say um, things like, you know, the Bible says that, you know, and, and mm. you'll see you'll see this from like flat earthers. You know, the Bible says the earth is flat. I mean, there's no particular verse that says that, but you can find quite a few verses that seem to imply that. Or that, you know, the sun is, um, or that the earth is, is, is the center, you know, the, the sun revolves around this earth and not the other way around. Um, and, and they'll take that and say, like, see, the Bible says it and that's it. And, 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 and my reply to that, which is the reply of basically anyone who has a, a sound biblical hermeneutic, is the Bible's not a science book. Like right. that's that you know you can't you know like that's not its point and and in the same way like you like I remember having a debate with a guy one time who said to me you know there's um there's there's nothing wrong with slavery because the Bible doesn't say it's a sin and I wanted to like reach through the screen and slap him <laughs> one of my not so proud moments um, because I'm like you know do you really need a, a, a religious text to tell you kidnapping someone against their will and making them work for you is wrong like do you really need that written that like come on man. Right. <laughs> you know so I guess the point I'm making is um, you know when you are in a very traditionalist sort of um, culture within within Christianity which which Adventism tends to be. Um, and there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, by the way. I, I don't want anyone who's listening to this who thinks who identifies as a traditionalist to feel um, slighted by that. Um, but I think that there is a tendency to view the Bible as more than it actually is. You know, so like I've seen people say, oh, the Bible's a great weight loss book. And I'm like, it has some <laughs> principles for health, but it's not mm -hmm. a weight loss book. You know, <laughs> like, right. and, and I remember when I was at university one time, we were looking at some guy who was attacking the Bible because um, there's some portion in one of Ezekiel's visions where it talks about a circle within a circle. And they had gone into that text and they had picked it apart because the dimensions of the circles didn't match pi, you know, which is like the, the, the circumference of a circle. Right. And the professor basically was like, you know, the Bible's not an arithmetic book. Like, what do you, <laughs> that's not the point. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is the Bible is not a book about sexuality. Right. It may touch on sexuality. It may inform us. It may give us some principles, but it's not a book about sexuality. It does not exhaust that conversation. So finding a few verses and building your entire view of sexuality on that and that alone I think is ridiculous. It's like finding a few verses and saying, you know, um, these are a few little verses on, on health and I'm going to build my entire view of health from this and this alone, you know? Um, well, you might as well throw a ministry of healing out, you know, <laughs> which includes lots right. of extra biblical material. Um, yeah, ex and, and even with prophecy, like you can't understand prophecy unless you go outside of the Bible into history, right? And so, like, there's a, there's a, the Bible is a book that dances with history, that dances with culture, that dances with the human experience, and we have to be able to, to see both. So, yeah, like, I think that's part of the problem is that there will be people who will say, you know, Paul Anthony, everything you're saying is, you know, the Bible says this and that's it. And, and that settles it for me. It says this and that's the end of the story, you know? So that's how I would respond. I guess I suppose I'm interested in how you would respond. <laughs> yeah, to, to that point, I, I think, this actually becomes more of when, when people give that kind of response of uh, this is what the Bible says. I believe it. That's the end of it. Okay. First off, I think this gets into matters of epistemology. Um, this gets into some metaphysical matters where we people, we assume it's not just a Christian thing. This is a, I think this is a very, very human um, problem. We think that the way that we see things is, 
is indicative is is a picture of what is objectively there. So give okay, so when we're looking at the word of God, we think that because I can read these words on the page and in my and when I read it, it rings a certain thing seems to leap off the page as or seems to be constructed in my mind as to what that text means. And I come to believe that what I am reading is the clearest prima facie meaning of what's written on that page. And how do people back that up? Well, they'll say, oh, well, I'm just reading what the words say. It's like, well, I'm reading those same words, but coming to a different interpretation um, than you. And this is something that I appreciate that the philosopher Immanuel Kant really brings out is that the world is, um, it is we don't deal with the objective world. We don't deal with the world as thing in itself. We're constantly dealing with our, I'm gonna put this in, in, in very wrong terms, just to say it very succinctly. It's the world is basically our mind, our mind's um, representations of the things that are actually there. So it's like the objects that we, the, the, we think that we're dealing with, like for instance, my water bottle in my hand right now or my, or my phone in my hand. We're often tempted to think that we're dealing with these objects in their objective, objectively as it were. But in reality, we're dealing with our representations of these things. So how do I take that and apply that to the word of God? When you're looking at the word of God, you're we're, we're constantly drilling down to try to get closer to what's actually there, the objective truth of the text, but realizing there's almost a, there's almost a kind of barrier between us and getting at the absolute truth. We could always be, get closer and closer and closer but the moment that we say that we've arrived at the text, I think that we've actually destroyed the need for faith anymore because we can say, I don't need to have any faith any longer. I'm actually looking at the truth of what this text says for what it is. I'm no longer looking at this through, uh, I'm gonna say a dark glass dimly, or I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm no longer looking at, looking at it through my human constraints or restraints. Um, I'm looking at this thing purely for what it is. I think a lot of Christians well-intentioned think in that kind of way when they look at biblical passages on sexuality or or any matter um and you know being raised Adventist I was raised to believe you know when we look at these passages we are getting the objective truth on what these things actually say what they what were they what they were meant to say um etc and here's all the method here's all the hermeneutical um and exegetical uh, methodologies and principles that we that we needed to in order to get at this objective truth but I think that the moment that we say that I have arrived is the moment you say, I no longer need God. That's not to say that we're supposed to just abandon the quest for finding, for searching toward the absolute truth. It's just more recognizing that there is a sort of, there's a sort of barrier between us and absolute certainty, which is why faith is necessary. The Bible says very clearly, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So anyways, I think that's an important point when, and this actually kind of, I guess I would say probably leads into um, another point. Um, and it's that we ought to not assume that disagreement on matters of sexuality or marriage or sex or gender from a biblical standpoint, disagreements on that should not be seen as tantamount toward someone else with whom you disagree um, not being biblically faithful. And to say that another way, just because this person I'm talking with might maintain some some views um, regarding biblical sexuality with which you know I might disagree, doesn't mean that they are not applying the same kinds of reasoning. They're not they're not um, coming to the text with the same kind of humility that I might have, or the desire to actually learn truth as I might have. Um, I often, you know, I often thought I often thought that LGBT people who didn't believe like I did or have um, were not being biblically faithful because if they were being biblically faithful, they would come to the same conclusions as I had. But in, yeah, but in reality, no, they are interpreting the scriptures in trying to be just as faithful as I am. We might come to some different conclusions on some matters. I come to some different conclusions on. On biblical matters than straight people. Um, we need to, I think we need to have a, a greater degree of trust in each other and, 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 and trust that the other person means well. 
when they're approaching the word of God and not be so arrogant. And I, I used to be like this and I, I still struggle with it and not be so arrogant as to believe that when I approach the text, I'm doing it objectively. I'm doing it humbly. I'm doing it um, from a place of integrity. And if someone else comes to a point, a, a, a comes to a position that's different than mine, it's a priori an indication that they're not coming to the text objectively or et cetera. And you know, that, that automatically sets you up in the place of God because there's nothing anyone could ever say to you to check what you're saying or challenge what you're saying. Um, and you, you are automatically right about everything. And I, I think that the only person who can ever say they're right about anything is God. Absolutely. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, such so, a, that's such an important point, man, because if we're looking at, you know, like how do we minister with the LGBT community in a, in a redemptive way, in a meaningful way. And, and I wanted to do this part in our series, um, not with the intent of convincing people, like I said in the last episode, convincing people who have really, really, you know, sort of rigid views on this, um, and they've already made up their mind. If that's you, like I said, and you're listening to this and you're like, I disagree with everything, that's fine. Uh, it's not for you, you know? <laughs> um, but my interest was, okay, there's a lot of missional Adventists out there. I'm one of them and I talk to a lot of them. I get messages all the time, you know, throughout the week, emails, messages from all kinds of people. By the way, if you're listening to this and I haven't replied to you, I'm sorry, I get so many messages. <laughs> <laughs> and if you've tried calling me on my phone or texting me, you'll probably never hear back because I never respond to that thing. Like if you want to, I, 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 yeah, I, only, I only answer stuff of people I know on my phone, but if you want to get in touch with me, um, email or Facebook or something. But anyways, um, <laughs> the point I'm getting at is there's a lot of missional Adventists who are like, mm -hmm. You know, they're really hungry. They want to know, like, how do we minister to the culture? How do we connect with the culture? How do we build churches that begin to attract the secular, um, the secular seeker, right? The post-church seeker. How do we how do we engineer communities that I can invite my unchurched friends to in, in the sort of the modern, meta-modern post-church age? Um, and a big part of that discussion is you cannot effectively minister to a secular world today if you do not have some baseline for how you will minister meaningfully with LGBT people. Because that is one of the biggest conversations in the secular sphere today. Whether it's in the pursuit of legislation and, 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 and you know, uh, advocacy, or, or whether it's in the realm of mental health, whatever it might be, the pursuit or the conversation that surrounds the LGBT community is massive. So we cannot have churches that minister to secular culture that are not immersed in this conversation. It's just not possible, you know? And, and that's why I love what you're saying here because the thing about Adventist evangelism that has ticked me off for, for years is that Adventist evangelism assumes, there's like an unspoken thread behind it that assumes the kind of person that is being reached. This is mm. how Adventists, this is how we do evangelism. This is how we do discipleship. If you fit the script of the kind of person that this model can reach, we can disciple you. If you don't fit that script, then we can't disciple you. And the only people who seem to fit that script are people who are already moderately religious, mm -hmm. sort of middle class. They don't have too many vices. And they can come and you can convince them of a few propositional ideas. And outside of that, their lifestyle, you might have to, you know, rub a few rough edges down. But for the most part, they fit the script. Mm -hmm. And you can baptize them comfortably and move on with your life. But if someone comes to your church who's like, you know, a gangster covered in tattoos with drug addictions um, or, you know, someone who is from the LGBT community who has all these different experiences and ideas that they're processing, all of a sudden they, they don't fit that script. Mm -hmm. And our propositional ideas aren't enough because there's so much more going on than mere propositional ideological constructions. And they don't fit our script, so we can't disciple them. What happens to these yeah. people? We don't know what to do with them, you know? Um, and so when it comes to saying, you know, we want a church that ministers to the secular culture, a big part of that is saying you need to throw away the script. 
You cannot have a church that ministers effectively to secular culture if you're working off of a template that says, this is the kind of person that we can disciple. And if you fit this model, we'll disciple you. And if you don't fit it, then it doesn't work. You got to throw that script away and just be ready and willing to interact with people. And coming this full circle, coming back around to what you were just saying, a big part of that is getting rid of the notion that anyone who disagrees with you or who has a different opinion to you is automatically suspect. Automatically, this person is not a real Christian. Automatically, they're not really reading their Bible. Automatically, they're not really full of the Spirit. They're not really pursuing Jesus. That script that says you have to look like me and think like me or else you're not authentic and genuine is, is one of the scripts that prevents us from truly ministering effectively with people. Because it creates a wall, it creates a barrier. So I love that you mentioned that, man, because, you know, like, it, and it's not to say, because people get worried. They're like, oh, are you saying we should throw our biblical ethics out? Like, no, that's not what we're saying at all. <laughs> but that, there is a way to have uh, that ethic. Mm-hmm. But it's there's a difference between, you know, having the ethic and, and then how you manifest it in your interactions with people. And... That's where experience comes in. That's where loving people comes in. That's where humility comes in. It's where you can take your ethic and apply it in meaningful ways, in redemptive ways, in humble ways, in nuanced ways. That I think that's the massive key, you know, like nuance, you know. Anyways, I'm talking too much, Paul Anthony. You feel free to jump in and interrupt me, man. I, I talk a lot. Yeah, but, um, no, I was, I was going to say, yeah. Be, and because we have made the matter of biblical sexual ethics, such a major problem in the West, or at least in the United States. Um, I, don't, I don't know about in Europe or in Australia, but we've made it such a big deal in the United States that it becomes exceptionally difficult for us, for the church to interact with the, L, with the LGBT plus community um, because it assumes if you don't hold to these propositions that we have come to uh, have come to believe are quote unquote objectively true, <laughs> um, it means that you are not coming from a place of integrity. You're not actually you're not actually seeking to you're not you're not actually pursuing God at all, because if you were pursuing God, you would come to this place. So, but that's not again like you were just saying. That's not to say that the church, um, you know, should abandon its its it's it's sexual it's biblical understanding of things it's just more that the church needs to be willing to say okay i am not we are not god our 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 articulations of what we have come to understand or come to believe is true could be wrong or it could be partly right and partly wrong um but we it's we need to we need to recognize that we can be wrong so that we can start to make changes to our um, whatever necessary changes that we need to make to our doctrinal stances so that they're more inclusive um, and while they're being biblically faithful whatever whether you, you know, whether you come from a more progressive um, tradition or from a more conservative tradition there are ways in which all of us within christianity to, need to be able to to admit that we can be wrong in many regards when it comes to biblical sexual ethics. And also just recognize that LGBT people do want to know God. We're no, di- well, we're, we're no different from any other um, segment of the human race. We're just as much prone to our God or not prone to our God as the as straight people or any other group of people. Um, and just because um, there might be disagreement between the church and some of the LGBT plus community, it doesn't mean that this community does not want to know Jesus, that there aren't people who are, who are seeking after Jesus. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so absolutely, that's, man. that's very important. I love it. I love it, bro. Hey, uh, we got time for one more. Do you have time for one more? I got time for one I, more. So the fifth don't, and this is, oh my gosh, this is a, <laughs> this is a very important one um, to me. And it just, it just says don't treat LGBT plus people like a theological exercise or prioritize theology over people. So there's two parts to this. First, don't 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 interact with us as if we are some kind of a theological, philosophical, con- conceptual puzzle to solve. Um, and then also, you know, make sure that you're not using you're not placing your theology, 
your doctrinal stances over actually knowing people and engaging a group of people who wants to know God and has been disenfranchised from God by the church. So to deal with the first part, not treating us like <laughs> a theological problem, there's there's a there's definitely this undercurrent, and maybe it's an undercurrent, it's like just out there, blatant, um, this like this straight paternalism toward LGBT people. It's like straight people. Like I've had conversations, I remember uh, well-intentioned people, well-intentioned people, some mentors of mine, they, if they see me, I, I remember one time while I was at, and I was at Andrews University doing my, 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 my master's in divinity. And there was this conference that the school had put on. And there was this big, if I remember correctly, it was like a chalk, like a chalk box, actually, not, not a chalk board, but a chalk a black box, whatever, outside where people could write on like a like a like a chalkboard, whatever. And people were putting up, confessing things about their lives, things they had learned, and how they were coming to see their beauty um, through their trauma, the traumas that they had experienced. And there was one person, and I was walking there with one of my mentors, and they had been um, some help while I was during my undergrad years. They had been some a bit of help to me. Um, but looking back, there were a lot of things that I came to disagree with them about because of the fact that a lot of the a lot of the things they advocated for, a lot of the things they advised me just weren't good science. They weren't. I don't think they were biblically sound. They were not phil philosophically um, rigorous enough. But they were things that I that were suggested to me. So it took me a few years to undo some of those beliefs that they had instilled in me. Anyway, so I'm walking with this mentor who was visiting me. And um, we go up to this box and someone had written on th this, this box, um, I used to hate myself and think I was this um, ugly thing because I'm gay, but now I, I accept that God loves me as a gay person. And me looking at that last year, I think it was last year, uh, or a year and a half ago, I guess, because in 2019, either way, but me looking at that, I was just... I was touched to see someone's boldness to put that out there. I wasn't concerned with how they were living. I wasn't concerned about any of that. It's like this person has come to accept who they are and accept them that God loves them for this thing that society has told you, you are ugly for being. And so actually you want to, you want to know something? I, I'm remembering now how that experience actually unfolded. My mentor pointed out to me that that had been written on the, the blackboard. So there we go, that, that's a correction. So they directed me to it. I looked at it and I was like, wow, that's really great. And I say that, I was like, that's really amazing. I'm really happy to hear that. But all they could say is, yeah, but you know, what if they're, what if they believe it's okay to have gay sex? What if they believe gay marriage is okay? And I was so, I was, in that moment I became, I was confused. Uh, and I was incensed and I was like, who asked you to think about what they may or may not be doing in their bedroom? This person is talking about how God has set them free to recognize that he loves them for all that they are. Who gave you the right to come behind that and put an air of suspicion behind that? There's this, this, the, the straight paternalism is very prevalent within the church. This idea that we have to watch out for the gays to make sure they don't err in this way or that way. And it's not, and let's, to be very frank, it has nothing to do with being well-intentioned to our queer people. A lot of it comes from a place of prejudice and believing that queer people cannot order their own lives. That we need someone to be looking out after us. Otherwise, we're just going to go completely astray. If we didn't have the straight people here to guide us, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't be able to know God as it were. Do you think a part of that is because of the way in which the queer community has been hypersexualized? Oh, ab ab absolutely. Um, again, I don't know if I, I can't remember if I covered this in the previous, in the previous episode, but there is definitely a strong belief that one cannot be, that the gay community cannot exist or gay people cannot be gay unless they're being sexually active. And unless they're being really, actually the way a lot of people, a lot of straight people think about it, unless we're being sexually profligate, mm -hmm. we cannot 
actually be gay. Yeah. Um, which is again, just the way it's often portrayed in media or mm -hmm. certain um, conservatives, um, uh, factions of our society or of our, or of our church portray us in that way. And we're simply not yeah. that way. And, and just in case it wasn't, it wasn't, I, I, I think, I can't remember from the last episode whether we totally clarified this or not, but let me just put this out there in case anyone is needing this clarification, um, that there's a massive distinction between the gay scene and the gay community. Uh, most people yes. think when they think of the gay community, they think of the gay scene, which is, you know, people running around, having orgies and sleeping around with different, you know, massive difference between that. Uh, in the same way that there's a massive difference between heterosexual people who do that and, you know, uh, the rest of the heterosexual world, <laughs> um, gay people do not, do not, and correct me if I, if, if I don't phrase this correctly, Paul Anthony, but this is my understanding. Gay people do not run around thinking about sex with the same gender 24-7 like some yeah. hypersexual rabbit, right? They're, they're, they're not just running around like, I must have sex, I must have sex. That's not what gay people, that's not what the LGBT community is about. To my understanding, right. most people in the LGBT community, they want to have a simple life where they love, where they have a family, where they have community, and where they have their rights, their human rights respected. They're not running around, you know, to use the you know, old colloquialism, chasing tail all, all day long. That's that's a complete caricature of the gay community. A, a very unjust one. Exactly. Yeah. What and what I would say is we're not doing it any more than straight people have been doing it for centuries. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. That's how I would say that. So whatever straight people think we're doing, it's like we're not doing we're we're just as much human mm -hmm. as you are. Yeah. yeah. Don't expect that. There's nothing about being gay that makes or or you know LGBT plus anyway that makes us want to have sex or indicates that we're having sex any more than straight people. It's it's mm -hmm. just it's a and actually this is something that you saw you see with um, with black women actually um, often often black women have been hypersexualized and seen as um, as these um, sexually ob objectifiable um, creatures. Mm -hmm. um, for, for white people's pleasure. And it's just like, that's yeah. not- And, and this, no. this happened with black men as well, didn't it? They're in the, they're in the um, Jim Crow era where black men were being portrayed in, in the media and movies, usually through blackface as, as rapists. Yes. Uh, and so Absolutely. there was this, there, there was, this was one of the narratives of white supremacy uh, when it came to interracial marriage that you had to protect the, the, the sanctity of the white woman from these, you know, black men who were just these hypersexual beings who just wanted to have sex all the time. Yeah. And, and so like, absolutely, man, like, I think this is a narrative that doesn't just impact the gay community. It impacts just about any community that isn't in the, you know, is, isn't, doesn't occupy the elite channels of the age. You know, <laughs> there's, there's right. anytime someone is, is, is sort of in the oppressed class. There's always narratives and, and caricatures about them floating around. And um, the gay community right. has been victimized in that way just as much as, as others have, yeah. Um, so you were, you were you were talking about the theological exercise. Yeah, sorry, I was just trying to trace back like how we got there. All right, so theological. Yeah. So yeah, so a lot of times the paternalism is probably, you know, in many cases driven by this idea that if I'm not looking after Paul Anthony, then Paul yes. Anthony is going to lose control, you know, and and I that's such <laughs> it frustrating. It's it's, oh it's 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 frustrating. It's annoying, and it's it's downright condescending, and it doesn't have a place in a Christian's life. We're not a theological exercise. Some fan, there are some fantastic, absolutely, there are thousands, millions, I don't know, um, LGBT, wonderful LGBT plus Christians who have a thing or two to teach straight Christians about sexuality, about holiness. But we're seen as the ones who are kind of a, um, in need of a makeover. If you, if you're, if you look at people as a, an exercise, a project, you're necessarily going to be in your mind diminishing or denigrating their humanity. And 
you're never going to be able to see the beauty in their lives as long as you see them as a project to be worked on. Now, the second part of that bit that don't do this thing with LGBT people is to make sure that you're not prioritizing theology over people. And this is part, this is part and parcel of the first part of that, um, of that point. If you keep theologizing about LGBT people and talking about what does this text say about LGBT people and all these kinds of things, not only is it going to, it's going to destroy the humanity, at least in, in one's mind, it's going to destroy, denigrate the humanity of LGBT people. And it's going to establish this, how do I want to say this? Oh. And it will demonstrate that you would rather have conceptualizations about this community than have relationships with this community. That's the biggest, that's the biggest point there. I see a lot of Christians, a lot of my, some of my professors, scores of pastors, mentors, friends, well-intentioned who prioritize getting these facts right but not knowing the people. And if you don't know the people about whom these facts are supposedly about, if you don't know those people, you don't really know, you don't really have any existential grounding for what you're studying. Because these facts supposedly are about LGBT people's lives. You don't even know the LGBT people you're supposedly studying about. We need to start studying, the church needs to start studying, or maybe say it in a less clinical sounding kind of way, the church needs to start engaging with and forming relationships with LGBT people. That's just as important and actually more important than getting the theology correct. We have spent enough time trying to figure out what Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Romans 1, wherever the other ones are. We have spent enough time walking around that hill, walking around that mountain. When are we going to actually do something that's going to be a game changer? And the game changer is not going to be writing another text on homosexuality in the Bible. The next phase is going to be writing a text on, oh, I spent this time getting to know these LGBT people. I was able to put aside my presuppositions, my, my current beliefs on the matter, so that I could actually get to know these beautiful people. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Man, I love that, bro. That's a good place to end for today. That's a good place to end for today. We, we're going to come back next week. We're going to talk about, a, there's more, there's more. Um, I got some more questions that I'll be asking you and, uh, and we're going to talk about a few more. Uh, but thank you so much, Paul Anthony. That was that was a brilliant way to end it. And I think um, I think that that premise right there that you've established of really getting out there and, and meeting people. This is, this is one of my frustrations when it comes to secular mission. Because I have been to so many events hosted by the church about postmodernism and secularity. And mm -hmm. all I see is a bunch of armchair philosophers who are pontificating <laughs> on folk cult and, you know, all these different, you know, uh, uh, philosophers and Derrida's. And, and I'm just like, yeah, but have you, like, have you actually, like, hung out with secular people recently? You know, like, have you actually yeah. inhabited their space and spent time with them? Um, because that's what I aim to do. And, man, even I'm always feeling like I don't do it enough. You know, mm -hmm. like, I don't, I don't want to talk about postmoderns, like, or, or, or secular culture. I, I have to talk about it because that's what my podcast is about. It's about creating missional communities that <laughs> minister with them. But I don't want to just do that. You know, like, I actually want to spend time with them. I want to hang out with them because... The thing is, like, people are so complex, and it's the same for the LGBT community, so complex that you can take your really sexy theology, and when you hit, when you encounter a human being with all of their complexity, you feel like a fish out of water. It doesn't matter how, how well formulated and, you know, colorful your theology, you'll feel like a fish out of water. Like, I'll never forget this one story that of a pastor who went to a wedding and at the table at the after party for the wedding um he was actually sat down with a group of people um, and one of the ladies on the table was uh, gay and they got to talking and she was telling him you know uh, she's like oh i hate religion and you know i don't want anything to do with church or christianity 
And so he thought like, okay, like I can either get defensive here or I can just listen to her story. So he listened to her story. And a big part of her story was that when she was a child, um, she was abused by a priest and mm. that the abuse um, really scarred her and that it, it you know, she, she could not have healthy sexual interactions with, with the male gender anymore. And so she became a lesbian. Now, let me pause right now to, to say that that is her story. Because I know there's people who are like, everyone who's gay is because of trauma. No, it's not. <laughs> that was her story. Right. It's not everyone's story. Remember, there's a danger of the singular narrative. Um, but this was her story. But then she said to the pastor, which is the thing that really blew my mind um, and really blew his mind, was, um, you know, this, this, this guy abused me and, and this is what happened. And then, but then now that I'm lesbian, the same church who was instrumental in this trauma in my life turns around and tells me I'm going to hell. And all of a sudden he realized like his, his entire like theology, like all of those, you know, sexy studies and beautiful, you know, uh, what do you call them? PhD dissertations. It was just useless. It was useless in the face of, of real humanity, of real pain. Well, maybe useless is an overstatement, but you know, like it, it, you just realize like how much more beauty and depth there is to this than just mere theology, mere pontificating. Um, and I really want to encourage our listeners as you listen to this, man, you know, like the, again, the objective of this podcast series, you may not agree with absolutely everything we're saying and that's okay, but the objective is to really inspire you and encourage you like get out there and build relationships, you know, get out there and, and love the LGBT community. And that's why I titled this series ministering with not to the LGBT community, because they're not a project, you know, they're, they're beautiful people. And, but you can't minister with them if you're constantly assuming, um, if you're constantly judging, if, if you're operating off of a template or a script that you've pre-written uh, based on that. And we're going to explore that a lot more because I, I want to talk a little bit, even though we're not going to get into politics and stuff, I want to talk a little bit about how that impacts because I think sometimes people confuse the gay lobby with the gay community as well. And they think like, oh, the gay lobby is trying to pass all these laws and all gay people are against us. Fight, Christians fight. And it's like, uh... <laughs> oh, man, it's, it's yeah. So we'll, we'll parse that a little bit as well. And um, yeah, uh, man, I'm really enjoying this. This is, this is awesome, Paul Anthony. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna um, pause there for today, and I'll catch you again next week.